you so much, Father, that you are the mender of broken hearts. Thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the encouragement that we've received already. Just singing together, just seeing one another and encouraging one another with words of welcome and greeting. Thank you for your servants, Mike and Cheryl, who've encouraged our hearts with their report. Thank you for the small part we can play in that ministry. May we continue to be faithful. Thank you, Father, so much for speaking to us through your word. Thank you that uh, you are not a God far away, but that you are a God who communicates and that you've given us your word that we can have a grasp and an understanding of your expectations, of what it means to live for you, what it means to take the time we have on earth to be productive, fulfilling your will for our lives. May this morning be a time of evaluating that and encouraging our hearts to continue to live for you, to walk humbly in your presence, to walk in obedience according to your word. Father, for those whose hearts are heavy today, for those who are burdened, would you give them strength? Would you please give encouragement? It's in Jesus' name we pray now, committing ourselves to the hearing of the word. Amen. Well, I remember when I was a kid living in South Chicago that it was one of my favorite things to go on vacation to Grandpa's farm. Grandpa's farm was up near Wausau, Wisconsin. Have you heard of it? Um, if you haven't heard of Wausau, you might have heard of Mosinee because when you get to Wausau, you've got to head out in the country away from the city to a, a little community called Mosinee. There's big paper mills there, lots of woods. It's the northland of Wisconsin. If you want to see the word Mosinee, uh, when next time you're at a restaurant or at a, check the paper dispenser and you wash your hands, it'll sometimes say Mosinee Paper Company on it. You'll see that. I see it every once in a while. And um, I can remember leaving South Chicago late at night sometimes to head for Grandpa's farm. And, and after you get near the farm a ways and off the paved road, there was gravel roads, still is, gravel roads there, long straight roads, everything set out in sections there, nice and neat and square. And I can remember being knowing by waking up a little bit when Dad's tires on the Oldsmobile hit the gravel. We're not far away from Grandpa's farm now. Love to go to Grandpa's farm for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, and any boy would love to be in the woods and the farm and the animals and the ducks and the ponds and collecting eggs and so forth. But one of the things I liked about it is spending time with my dad. And when we were around the farm for the week of vacation that we would be there, my dad would always tell me stories. And he would tell me stories about when he was a boy on the farm. And uh, he would have his memory stirred, you know, by seeing a pile of rocks or something. And he'd tell me about when he and his brother Harold and Elroy picked those rocks and cleared the land and talked about dynamite and stumps. And he'd, we'd be down the road a ways or down a lane, and he would point out at this spot, one time he had an older brother-in-law when he was like 12 or 13 years old who had a brand new 22 rifle. And my dad and his brother Harold were there, or Elroy, I can't remember which one. And and his brother-in-law took a, a farmer's stick match, you know, a wooden stick match, and stuck it in the crack on a fence post on one side of the road, and they went across the other side of the road to the other fence post on the other side of the ditch, and, and the, the older brother-in-law told these young boys, if you can shoot that match off that fence post, I'll give you this rifle. So my dad shot first and shot the head off the match, and then my Uncle Harold shot and shot the rest of the match stick away. I don't know if they ever got the rifle or not. I doubt it. If I was the brother-in-law, I wouldn't have, but um, shouldn't have said it. 
Show me the spot out in the woods where the logging lanes used to be because they always logged in the wintertime and dad had to quit school in eighth grade and where his brother threw the logging chain over the log pile and they used to use horses to drag the logs out in the wintertime and they'd, his brother threw the chain over and hit him in the end of the, hit the chain, hit him in the mouth and broke his tooth off and stories about the farm and about his brothers. And that was always really interesting to me. But then we'd sit around the table at night and they would start talking about people that I didn't know. They'd go back even farther. And you know, I, I didn't care too much about that. And we'd always get in the corner of the dining room where the grandpa and grandma's little black and white TV would be and we'd watch Hawaii Five-0 or something like that, you know, and let them talk. Did you ever notice that, that family records and people from the past... If you know them, you usually have some interest in it, especially if you're about 25 and over. When you're a kid, you don't care sometimes. But then when you start talking about people that you don't know way in the past, we always kind of list our eyes kind of turned in the back of our head and glaze over, don't they? Well, this morning, I hope your eyes don't glaze over because we're going to talk about some people that we don't know very well, and they lived a long time ago, and it's just the family record. I've entitled the message this morning, Lessons from the Family Tree, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. If you've ever tried reading through your Bible before, you remember hitting Genesis chapter 5, and you can remember hitting 1 Chronicles Chronicles chapter 1, and uh, you can remember hitting um, the book of Ruth, I forget which chapter, maybe chapter 3, maybe maybe the first chapter, uh, Matthew's first chapter chapter or so, Luke's third chapter. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the genealogical records that are printed out for us in our Bibles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to benefit from. And if you're reading through your Bible, you hit these chapters and you, you kind of, because you got to say, you got to put that little check mark on your list that you're reading through the Bible. So you go real fast with your eyes and you do the speed reading thing and your eyes hit all of the words and you count it as reading. And then you read the next chapter, like chapter six about Noah and the flood. And it's a lot more interesting. Well, we just finished chapter four. So the next chapter is five and that's where we're going to be this morning. And you know what? There are some really fascinating things in chapter five here. Let's read the text. I am warning you that it's, it's about the family tree. It's a genealogical record. It's about people who lived and died a long time ago. And it's not the ones that we're very interested in, maybe. But let's read it carefully. And let's see what God has for us this morning in our message from Genesis chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years And then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he had became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Seth lived 912 years. Say this part with me from now on. And then he died. 
And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. And when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And after Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Lamech lived 777 years. And then he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you like history or not. This is uh, very much a historical account, a genealogical account. To help you a little bit, let me tell you how I want to divide this up today and how I want to kind of come at it so that we can get something out of it. First of all, when I read a passage like this, Personally, I have some questions. Now, I would think you have a few questions about a passage like this. There are some very obvious questions that come up. And um, I would like to ask some questions. And so we'll entitle the first part of our message, Puzzling Questions. Secondly, to me, and you notice that repeated phrase that we said together, and then he died, on every single one of them. Of course, Noah's story didn't finish. That's going to take a little longer. Every time... We had what? We had how old a man was when his son in the genealogical record. We don't know for sure if it was his oldest son, but the son that was recorded for the genealogy was born, how old he was, then how many years he lived after that, that he had sons and daughters, and then he died. Until, did you notice the inconsistency in the passage? One guy, what was his name? Enoch. And so I think we should look at that because that just kind of pops out on the page, doesn't it? And so number two, there's a glaring inconsistency. Let's look at that. Some puzzling questions, then a glaring inconsistency. But then there's a couple other things that when you step back after you read a chapter like this, you have to say are some challenging conclusions. And we'll make a few life applications from the family tree here. 
Okay? So let's dig in with some, some puzzling questions. And uh, I don't know what questions you have exactly. And in fact, on this Genesis series, and I've received some emails from some of you, tried to direct you to different websites to answer questions, or if I knew the qu- answer, I would try to say it. Um, but feel free to email me or feel free to write things down, drop them in the offering plate or hand them to me when you leave if you have a question that hasn't been addressed. Now, I don't have all the answers, but I am doing a good bit of reading on Genesis right now and trying to get a handle on some of these things. And I'm finding it really interesting to preach through the book of Genesis. And I was kind of dreading this chapter, but I feel like the Lord has really challenged my heart in a very deep and serious way, even from the genealogical passage here. And uh, so hopefully we can benefit from being together in chapter 5. And then we hit chapter 6, and this is that amazing story of the worldwide flood and Noah and how God saved the world through Noah. So don't miss the next few weeks. We have some interesting messages coming. First now this morning, puzzling questions. What kind of questions would you have in a passage like this? I had three that I want to address this morning. Number one is, why in the world they even put this in the Bible? Okay, why would you even put it in the Bible? Number two... Is it possible to get an accurate date of creation based upon working backwards in the genealogy? You follow me? If we have the line of Adam here and we go forward to Noah, then it seems to me we can figure out how old the earth is. I think that's a good question. But number three, I think the question we all really are asking is, come on, Pastor Van, did these people really live this long? What is that all about? 777 years sounds like some poetic expression to me. 969 years the oldest man lived? Are you kidding me? How could this be? And a little bit like last week, is remember, it's in what we have here so you can kind of think about it. Okay, remember we have creation, chapter 1 and 2. We have the fall in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we have a man in rebellion against God, Cain, right? He kills his brother. The second half of the chapter, we've got his descendants, his his genealogy, Cain's genealogy, the Cainites, and they're a people in rebellion against God. Remember? Creation, and then we have fall in chapter 3 where they sinned, and then the Cainite rebellion, Cain kills Abel, rebels against God, his descendants rebel against God, and now in chapter 5, we've got the Sethite genealogy. And really, it's it's the genealogy of Adam's offspring, but this is now Seth's line, and you know what's interesting? This gets repeated. It gets repeated in 1 Chronicles. It gets repeated in Ruth. It gets repeated in Luke. And guess who comes from this line of Seth? Even our Lord Jesus. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Okay, and that's a little clue why it's even there. Question number one, right? Question number one, why is this even in the Bible? Well, you need to understand, and you need to, it'll help you a lot if you can just get a handle on this concept. God isn't too worried about whether you enjoy the Bible. God is into revealing truth, and sometimes truth isn't all about fun, rah, rah, let's have a good time. And so, therefore, a lot of the Bible is history. Now, some people, they just can't stand history. It's a shame because history is really fascinating. Because what is history about? As Sam Erickson always signs his letters, living in his story a play on the word history. It's his story. And in a way, history is the story of God at work in humankind. And that's one of the things we see in in the early chapters of Genesis, isn't it? That when God created the earth, he put people on the earth, and he put them here for a reason. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But God cares about people, and it's 
God working his story out in the lives of people. And the lives of those people is quite interesting, isn't it? And we call that history. And we can learn a lot from history. Shamefully, we don't so often learn much about history from history. And we repeat the same old mistakes. We live in a, a circular world, don't we, where we cycle through the problems, kind of like the book of Judges. We trust God, then we turn away from God, and then we get into big, big problems, and then God judges, and then we repent and start over again, walking with God, but then we forget history, and we do the same thing over again. And so question number one is, why is this in our Bible? It's here because the Bible is a historical record of the people of Israel. And this is Moses writing an account specifically to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Is about the time I think much of this was written. And he's writing to them so that they have a record, so they know from where they've come. You like to do that a little bit. Some of you are into genealogical research, aren't you? I've noticed when people do genealogies, they really, really get into it. And it's really funny because they'll bore the rest of the family, the people that aren't interested in it, and they want to tell them, oh, I found this this week, and they start telling about Uncle Luke, and Uncle Luke was married to uh, Jebediah Stewart, and Jebediah Stewart had a wife whose name was Rebecca, and she died in childbirth, and then this, that child grew up, and that child grew up, was a school teacher in that schoolhouse up the road. Isn't that great? And you're like, yeah, that's great. It's great. But the people who are into it are really into it. So some people here are really kind of interested in that stuff. And I've enjoyed Jim Sabolsky's enthusiasm for researching his roots in, in Poland. And he took a trip over there. It's fascinating. You ever get a chance to let Jim show you his slides? And he tells you about different people. And he even in 55 Alive was showing us the pictures. And there's a statue of a guy, correct me if I'm wrong, and it's one of Sue's relatives. That's pretty neat, a former general or something way back when. And that's what we like to do. It's a historical record. And that's partly why this is here. Moses is recording for Israel. This is, this is where you've come from. You know, one of the little applications that we can make today is that I've got some evidence here that I didn't evolve out of a puddle of scum. There was Adam, and Adam had a son, and his son had a son, and I even know how long they lived. And it resulted in me. And these are my people. This is my family tree. Isn't that interesting? And that's a good thing because we like to have answers like that, right? And because the world at large with the humanistic, secular worldview can't stand the ownership of God over their lives, they have to invent systems whereby they deny that the very logical flow. Wouldn't you think it totally makes sense that somewhere along the line there would be a record of where people came from? Well, there is, right here in the Bible. And isn't that interesting? It's right here, and the Bible, once again, totally fits the way we think, totally fits what is logical, and evolution and the secular worldview is totally opposite of what our logic screams out for. You came from nothing, out of nothing came scum, from the scum comes you, so forth. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't even make sense, but we have the record right here, and it fits. Question number one, why was it here? For a historical record to know where we came from. Secondly, second question is, is it accurate to date creation from this passage? And that's a really interesting question. And for many years, back in like the 1500s even, some of the Bible students back then, there was a guy named Usher or Usher, who was actually, I think, a Catholic priest and a, a scholar. And the Usher's dating method 
And um, I didn't, I don't think I wrote down exactly what his point was, but like Josephus, I mentioned him last week, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, he concluded that based on genealogical record and some other deductions, that the age of the earth at that point from creation to Noah's flood was 5,555 years. Okay? Calvin, or excuse me, Luther, Martin Luther thought it was 3,961 years. And if you strictly go by the genealogy in the passage and you do the math, I believe you'll come up with the number that from, from Adam, give or take, because we don't know when creation, how long, days of creation, but from Adam on the fifth day, was it? I forget, I just preached it, but I forget what I preached. Don't you forget what I preached, but I forget what I preached. That's why I keep them in notebooks in the shelf. But, um, so from Adam till Noah... All right, was 1,656 years, according to this genealogy. And so I don't want to bog down on this point like I did in the early service, and I lost track of time. But it is kind of interesting. But the short answer is, can we date creation to the time of Noah from this genealogy? The short answer is probably no, not accurately. And the reason for that is, the text doesn't tell us anything about it, but the reason is, is when you study other genealogical records, you realize there's something going on with the numbers. For example, in the Cainite genealogy in this passage, there are, I want to say 10, but I'm lost in my notes. Yes, 10 names listed. And then when you come to the Sethite genealogy record, there's 10 names listed. It's interesting, in the Canaanite, in the Canaanite genealogy in chapter 4, guess who seventh down is? The seventh one you come to. Lamech, the bigamist, remember him? Lamech, the guy who wrote songs and poetry and pounded his chest in front of his two wives about killing a young boy for bumping into him. Lamech, the most wicked man who lived at that time. Okay, You'll notice there's a crossover of names. I take it to be that these guys could name their kids Johnny and Billy and Sammy, and these guys name their kids Johnny and Billy and Sammy too. It's just common names. They're not the same people. In the, in the Sethite progression, guess who's seventh down the line? Enoch. It's Enoch. And so when you're reading through these genealogies, you realize they're here for a reason, but the more you think about it, the more you realize there's a pattern to things, and Lamech in the Canaanite genealogy stands out for his wickedness, for man left to himself in rebellion against God, and here's what you have, Lamech. And then those who followed after God, when they began to call out after God and seek God, seventh in line, equal with Lamech, is Enoch who walked with God. Lamech rebelled against God. Enoch walked with God. We have a contrast. When you go to the Matthew and Luke genealogies where they list the genealogies of Joseph and Mary, you find there that there's 14. There's 14 generations in the lists. Okay? And there's also in the... Um, in Ruth, King David's genealogy is a ten-name set. And so one of the things they've discovered from historical records that there's kings and generations that are missing in some of these genealogical sets. And so they use a word, sometimes you'll read in a commentary where they use a telescopic geneal genealogical record. They kind of telescope. They'll pass some generations. And so they'll say, you know, like in my case, Eugene begot Van. All right? And if I was in a genealogical record, that's true. He begot Philip before he begot Van. I have an older brother, but Philip didn't get mentioned, maybe. They mentioned Van. And then they might, but they might have said, like, I should have started back farther. 
but I don't, can't remember my grandfather's names, but they would say, like Eugene, and let's say a couple generations from now, I'm going to have a grandson named, you know, Woody. I'm going to name him after Woody. And, uh, and so, so my great grand so, and I say, and Van begot Woody, but I left out Jonathan, and I left out whoever Jonathan's son is, he's going to have Woody, all right? And it's likely that Jonathan would name a son after Woody. It's, he likes to go up to his cabin on the side of the mountain. But you see what I'm saying? So they'll say, so it's true that this father had a son, but it's third generation below him. It was really a great-great-grandson. And that is kind of a short answer for the question, can you date the origin of the earth according to these genealogies? Probably not. Scholars debate it back and forth. But even if there were triple this amount in the genealogy, what do we still know about the age of the earth? Is it billions and billions of years old? Absolutely not. We live in a young earth, don't we? And God has a plan, and God is at work through people. Question number three. Question number one, why is this included in our Bible? It's history. Question number two, is it accurate to date creation? No. Question number three, are these lifespan records for real? That's the question. What about this, Pastor Van? What about these 900-year-old guys? Stuff like that. What is that all about? And I think that's pretty interesting. And the short answer to that is, I don't know, it just says it. Now, you create a lot more problems when you start fishing around for answers. And on the genealogical record, there's some very good historical evidences that this was a pattern used in genealogical record. And you can say, you know what? Some generations were likely left out. But when you start tampering with these numbers, you're just out fishing in the air. There's no good answer. So it brings us back. If the plain sense makes sense, don't seek another sense. It's there. But you say, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know what? Just because things aren't the way I understand it, it doesn't mean that's the way it is. And one of the problems that we have in this, much like in the sense of Cain, where did he get his wife, ends up being a little bit of an embarrassment to Christians. Because we think it's a little bit unintellectual. Not a very good answer to think of Cain's incestual marriage to his sister or his niece. He's like, ah, I'm just really uncomfortable with that answer, even though it's the plain answer. And it's the obvious conclusion from my Bible. And then these people that live 900 years, you mean you believe people live 900 years? Yeah. Why? Because it's in my Bible. I'm not embarrassed of my Bible. Why be embarrassed of my Bible? It makes sense. But let me give you some, questions, some, some thoughts on why was it this way? Why did they live that long? And I've got to rattle this off. How could it be? First of all, I think original intent of lifespan. Original intent of lifespan. How long do you think God planned for Adam and Eve to live? When Before they sinned, how long do you think God's plan was for Adam and Eve to live? I think forever. I think you can arguably build a case for that. Okay? But then they disobeyed, okay? And they ate of the tree of the of knowledge and good and evil, and the wages of sin was what? Death. And one thing you have here in chapter 5, you have a genealogical record, and what did we say together happened to everyone? And then they died. You know what you have? You have the, you have the record that what God said is true. But think about this. In those earlier generations... Just like Cain could marry a sister or marry a niece because his genetic 
pool was not corrupted and disease had not entered and genetic crossover hadn't taken place, it makes sense to me, doesn't it to you, that if God intended people to live forever, that in those earlier generations they could live a long time before the full effect and ramifications of disease and illness embedded itself in the human body. I think it did because they died. But there was a lot less disease, and then diseases compound things and add to diseases. And so I think it's just part of God's original plan, and he let it run out that way a little bit. I think there's another reason for that. So number one, God's original intent was longevity. It was eternal life, but then longevity is just a fallout from that until death and disease got more rampant and caught up with them. But secondly, I don't think it's wrong to say this was just God's plan. This is the way they live, just like we live 70 years. Because God's plan is, wait till we see, in a couple weeks we're going to see, after the flood, when Noah gets off the ark, you know what he's going to tell Noah how long he's going to live? 120 years. After Genesis chapter 6, man's going to live about 120 years. And we know that they did live over 100 years of age. How old was Sarah when she got pregnant? Over 100 years old, probably. And Abraham, when they had a son, finally. All right, now, even then, their bodies had shriveled up to the degree that they were old, old people, and it amazed, it was a miracle that they could have a child at that age. But they lived to be 120. That's God's plan for that era. When we get to the Psalms, the psalmist wrote down, how long was a, could you expect your life to be, according to the psalmist? Three score and ten. Three twenties and a ten. What is that? Seventy. 70 years. Does that make sense in my mind with what's happening in the world? When I observe the world around me, the average that people live is what? About 70 years, right? Do you really expect to be very productive after 70? Some of us have high hopes. We have no idea. But also, if somebody is 70 years old and they die, what do we think? Well, they lived a pretty good life. We don't say, oh man, they missed out on 50 years of good living. They don't do that. And we certainly don't say, man, they left out, they left out on, they, they missed out on 829 years of good living. Well, that's ridiculous. And so it was just God's plan. Another thing that's worth mentioning that I don't want to bog down on that, that there's chapters and books written about it is the pre-flood atmospheric conditions. It's kind of interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about this on the actual flood. Bible students pretty much agree that it wasn't normal for rain until the flood, that rain was a new concept. We'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. You remember when Noah's flood started, how many days did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights, right? Is how much it rained. And the heavens broke open and the fountains of the deep broke forth. So there was water in the earth and there was water in the sky and biblical scientists theorized that this was a huge vapor canopy that surrounded the earth at that day. It made it what they call a greenhouse effect. And they surmised that the greenhouse effect, this vapor canopy, kept the sun's rays from coming through and doing the damage and bringing on death. The sun is hard on things. You ever leave, you leave a board out in the sun, it ruins wood. You know, it ruins your skin, give you cancer. And a lot of it is attributed to the atmospheric condition. I have no idea if that's true or not. The Bible doesn't say that, but almost every book I read about the pre-flood conditions attributes the canopy effect to having some effect on the longevity of human life. 
I don't think God needed that to happen. He could have just ordained it that you live long. It was the ordinance of God. But the canopy or the greenhouse effect. And then you say, well, I think also, finally, God allowed this for a very logical reason. And you remember what he told Adam in Genesis 1 and chapter 2? He said, be fruitful and multiply and do what with the earth? Fill it. Fill the earth. And you think about that, it really makes sense, doesn't it? Now you think about somebody who's 500 years old, that's Noah, and then he had three sons. Some people think he had triplets. When he was 500, did you catch that? And when Noah was 500, in the last verse of chapter 5, he had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. I don't know if he had triplets or not. You can't prove it by the text. When he was 500 years old, then he had three sons in succession, maybe. But I'm pretty impressed with a 500-year-old guy who's still fathering children. That's not too bad, you know? You remember I read to you out of Henry Morris's book last week about when Cain was judged by God and he was worried about the people attacking him. Remember that? And we surmised, well, how many people were on the earth, depending on how old Cain was, and maybe Cain was 100, 100 or more years old when he killed Abel. And maybe there was an order, maybe other children were born that at least sisters anyway, and they had wives and they had children and they're married, their children married. And I read to you out of that book where if you use 80 years as kind of a lifetime to have three boys and three girls, in 80 years, it's not, if you started at 80 years of age having three boys and three girls, a husband and a wife, and I would say it was the norm for most people back then to have followed God's plan of a husband and a wife, a husband leaving his wife, leaving his family, and cleaving onto his wife, and that Lamech in chapter 4 is the first one who was a bigamist and started plurality of wives. But I would say even then, like now, it's the norm for one man and one woman to have a family. Now, sometimes there's a divorce and a second family, but the norm is a man and a wife, basically. You don't think in terms of having 13 wives and 13 sets of kids. All right? So I don't think that was what was happening. But if you go back to what Morris was saying, let's just use the numbers for our mathematical equation. Three guys and three boys and three girls. And then in 80 years, you do it again. Same mom and dad. Have three more boys and three more girls. And then another 80 years, and you do that five times. By then, you're 500 years old. Not a problem, right? My grandma had 13 kids in the span of, what, 30 years, 20 years? I don't know how many years. It was 13 kids in about 25 years, probably. All right? And so if you use that, and then their children grow up, and, when, and they do the same thing, three boys and three girls, and you've got these sets every 80 years going on. It's exponential growth. Guess what you can conclude? Remember we said Cain, at the time of Cain, it was possible that there was as many as 120,000 people on the earth. Possibly. You could figure, figure that out. If this is a possibility, using the same numbers and the exponential growth of families, guess how many people could have been on the earth at the time of Noah's flood? Seven billion. B billion. Seven billion. Isn't that something? It's amazing, isn't it? Way more people than it's on the earth today even, right? Isn't there only like, three, how, many, how many people on the earth today? I didn't do my research. Six billion. Six billion. So we're not quite caught up to, to the flood. 
All right? That's just doing the math there. And I think it makes sense that one reason that all these people lived this long was to do exactly what God said to fill the earth. Because why? God is about people, isn't he? I don't think there's any planets with other people on them. You say, you can't prove that, Pastor Van. I know I can't. But the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Our problem is we think way too small of God. And the reason, you say, why did he put all those galaxies out there? And why can they keep discovering more galaxies and more universes of planets? Because God is that big, and he just spoke it into existence, and he knew we would look through telescopes one day, and we were supposed to go, wow, there has to be a God. Not, oh, I wonder if there's more people out there. God is all about being at work in the lives of people. He's a relational God. For some reason, and I do not know his sovereign mind, he populated the earth so he would have a relationship with people. There might have been 7 billion people there, and part of the answer to that was letting people live to be 800 and 900 years old and have children. Well, we made it through point one. Should I keep going? I think I should quit. I'm in a quandary. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I thought I could get through that a lot faster. It's 20 after 12. We have two other things we wanted to look at. We wanted to look at the glaring inconsistency, didn't we, of Enoch. The problem I have if I don't finish this message is that uh, the first and second services are out of sync. Let me just tell you what it is. And let's pray and go, sing and go home. So we have asked some puzzling questions. Number two, what I thought popped out of this passage was the glaring inconsistency with Enoch. And I think we see there three things about him. Number one, let me just rattle them off to you. Number one, he had a tender heart for the Lord. Did you see what it said? He walked with God. He walked with God. That has the word, has the idea that he's walking on the same trail in the same direction in agreement with. That's a tender heart for the Lord. What kind of world did Enoch live in? An ever-increasingly wicked world, didn't he? He had a tender heart for God, passed down through probably oral tradition, although Moses' words in verse 1 of chapter 5, this is the written account of Adam. It's possible that Moses was saying, I'm writing it down. It's also possible that he was referencing the written genealogical account that they had in writing somehow. Can't prove it. A tender heart for God. Secondly, if you go to Hebrews 11, don't go there. Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. You know what it said there? That Enoch, by faith, believed God and lived in a way that was pleasing to God. He was a man of faith. He fellowshiped with God and he was a man of faith. And if you go to Jude, verse 12 and following to verse 14, it says that Enoch, that prophet of old, eighth in line from Adam, preached against unrighteousness. So number one, he had a tender heart for God. Number two, he had a life-impacting faith, Hebrews 11. And number three, he had a righteous voice for God, Jude, verse 14. That's a man, you know that? And I really believe God just took him up. He never died. Do you remember somebody else in the Bible who did that? Elijah. Remember Elijah, God's prophet? Great stories about Elijah. Elijah. The prophets of Baal, Ahab, and 
and Jezebel. Oh, it was a great period of history in Israel, and Elijah was God's man. And then he had his young student prophet, Elisha, that he had placed his mantle on him, and it was time for him to go to heaven. You know what the Bible says in 1 Kings? That he went up in a whirlwind in a fiery chariot, and Elisha watched him go. Isn't that something? Two people never died in the Bible. Enoch walked with God, and in Hebrews chapter 11, you know what it says? It says that he never died in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, and it says, and they couldn't find him. I picture his wife telling one of the boys, go find your daddy, it's time for supper. Comes back in, mom, I can't find him. He was gone. You read Hebrews 11, it's there. He never died, they just couldn't find him because God took him. Enoch and Elijah. I don't know for sure, but there's two prophets that come back in the book of Revelation, and some pastors and Bible students speculate that maybe it's going to be Enoch, and we know from Jude 11 that he was a prophet, a powerful preacher, and Elijah, we know, was a great confronter of sin, and Enoch, more than we realize, was that from Jude verse 14, that maybe they'll be the two witnesses for God in the, in the great tribulation period in the, in the last days, which I'm going to predict are about eight years away from right now. That was a joke. I don't really make predictions. So there we have this inconsistency with Enoch. Finally, and it focuses on the word, the words that we said together, and then he died. The third thing that I have to get from this passage is a challenging conclusion. Let me just rattle this off. No matter how long you live, when you read this chapter, no matter how long you live, you only get one life. No such thing as reincarnation. And these guys, no matter how long they live, they only got one chance to live. No matter how long you live, life is still very brief. You know what I base that on? Let's take Methuselah, for example. He was born, whatever the date was, and they chiseled it in his tombstone, didn't they? And then they put a little dash, and then they chiseled the date that he died, right before the flood. How long was the dash on the guys that lived 969 years and the guys dash who lived 500 years and the guys dash who lived 800 years? You see, you walk through the cemetery all the time, don't you? And you see the date of birth and you see the date of death and you see the dash and everybody's dash is just really short, isn't it? That's your life, people. And even if you're 900 years old, you know what you talk about sitting around the fire with your great 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 grandkids? They're just like yesterday. Life is short, man. Life is short. Thirdly, no matter how long you live, one of the things you learn from this passage, no matter how long you live, you still die. No matter how long you live, you still die. I think that's a powerful message from this chapter. You can live to be 900 years old if you want to. I had one guy in the early service raise his hand that he thought he would live to be 120. I told him we'd honor him by propping him up here after he's gone. I'll give you a clue. He ain't going to live to be 120. Furthermore, if you know Jesus, why would you even want to live to be 120? But you know what? We only have one life. We've got to make it count. What are we doing with the dash? Life is a vapor, my friends. And Enoch is the model for the guy we want to be walking with God, a faith that was pleasing to God, a message that was powerful for God. 
Some of us have got to quit goofing around. None of us. I was on the phone with Terry LaHue last night, and Wayne's tumor, we're finding out bits and pieces more, but that tumor and that cancer, that brain tumor that Wayne LaHue has is a very serious kind. It's a very powerful, mean stuff. They think they got it all right now. We don't know what the future holds, and that's what Terry and I were talking about on the phone last night. She said, Pastor Van, I'm not going to read about it on the computer anymore. I'm just going to take every day. We're going to live one day at a time. And you know what, Pastor Van, she said? You or me might go before Wayne. The Lord might call us before him. There's no day guaranteed. If you're 39 or 69 or 699, life is short. Live it for Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you search our hearts this morning that we would tell ourselves the truth about reality? Lord, thank you for this fascinating passage. And in this genealogy, how we have some questions and we kind of get distracted on really the minor things. But Lord, the glaring, screaming message of the passage is that everybody dies and it authenticates and verifies your words in chapter 3 that the wages of sin is death. Thank you so much, Lord, for the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may hearts be tender this morning to cry out for, for your salvation and to receive it as the free gift that it is. With our heads bowed, and just listen to me a moment because I want to talk to that one person that you might not know Christ. Listen, you're living out your dash right now, but the day's coming they're going to chisel the death date in your tombstone. The only thing that matters is whether or not you know, Jesus Christ is your Savior. God gives us this earth to prepare for eternity. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you admit that to God? Do you know that he loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin? And in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he said it's a free gift, just like a birthday gift, but it's only good if you reach out and take it, open it, apply it to yourself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, my friend, you're loved by God this morning. You haven't sinned too much to be saved. God wants to make you a new creation in Christ and forgive you the sin and make you his child. And even as I close up my prayer, you can pray to God. Tell him you're accepting his salvation by faith. Admitting you're a sinner, believing that Jesus is the Christ, accepting his free gift of salvation. Father, you know our hearts and our minds here, so do your work in the lives of people today, I pray. In Jesus' name.